Welcome everybody back to the Hopeful Majority. I'm your host, Manu Meal, and today our guest is going to be filmmaker, documentarian, storyteller, Ben Recky on, who created a, an amazing documentary in 2020 called The Reunited States. And the question that we're going to be answering in the show is how do you achieve cultural breakthrough for an idea that you deeply care about? I know it's especially important today because oftentimes politics is seen as downstream of culture. And having the cultural microphone is especially important. As you know, every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content, we're trying to build a platform for all of us to be able to have constructive conversations, to be able to speak to the hopeful majority of us out there that simply want to live in a world where there's dialogue and deliberation. And Ben was a fascinating perspective to bring on. I'll have a monologue, then we'll go into the interview, and then we'll end with that conversation. So let's cue the intro, and I'll see you in the monologue. How do we achieve cultural breakthrough? And specifically for the idea that I'm talking about, how do we achieve cultural breakthrough for this notion of civic dialogue, understanding, deliberation, the hopeful majority? What, I, what do I mean by this? Why do I ask that question? The reason I ask that question is because we live at this moment of extreme division, extreme partisanship, uh, in a world in which we see the pundits slicing and dicing our country, where we see deep conflicts and the sores of our past ills plaguing our society. And the sentiment that I always hear, what was the inspiration for the show, is that you naturally think that most people are incredibly divided, and yet when you have actual conversations, people say, well, I just want to live in a society where we understand each other, see each other, empathize with each other, be able to have constructive dialogues, not to compromise, but to be able to understand difference. And we want to see stories of compassion. We want to see stories of empathy, and yet you don't see it. What you see in the mainstream, what you see in culture, what you see dominating the headlines is division and the temperamental extremes and the people that are constantly out there demonizing the other side. And to answer that question, I brought on somebody named Ben Recky, who's an amazing filmmaker. And if you want to learn more about his work, you go to actually one of his recent documentaries he made, which was the inspiration for this conversation 2020 called The Reunited States, where he told four stories. And we get into those four stories in this conversation. He told four stories of deep compassion, and empathy, and not some kumbaya stories, stories of people that were experiencing real pain that put down everything they had so that they could empathize with the other. And he told these four stories, and the story of transformation that occurred in this film was one where people saw their preconceptions of the other obliterated. A story that I think most people listening to the show would love to see. And I think most people in the country want those stories. And yet when Ben and I were having a conversation before the show, he said, Manu, it bombed. Now first, I just have to appreciate the humility and candor that Ben has and lives his life with. It's something that I think we all can learn from. But secondarily, the question piqued my interest. Well, why did it bomb? To me, who some might say is a nerd for bridging and listening to people that are different than each other and wants a pluralistic democracy. I mean, of course, Manu, you want to hear those stories. And yet, why was it that this film did not achieve cultural breakthrough? Because it identified an idea, one of compassion and overcoming our differences, told them in an extraordinarily eloquent way you can find on Amazon Prime, judge it for yourself. And yet, and it had it had two executive producers and Megan McCain, who represented the conservative side, and Van Jones, who represented more of the liberal side, come on, and it fell flat. 
And he essentially articulates three reasons. And I think these three reasons are broader lessons for any of us in the bridging movement, for any of us that have ideas that are trying to figure out how do you get those ideas to be mainstream? Well, first is that there's a lack of cultural buy-in. The incentive structures don't align. Right now, the incentive structures, whether you're in social media and you're in the news or you're trying to tell stories or you're an influencer, what's the incentive structure to get traction and clicks? You know it. So let me run to the extremes and say the craziest stuff. Because saying the craziest stuff is going to drive traction because you, the person listening, is going to reward that. I'm going to reward it because who doesn't want to see that stuff? And so the first is that the incentive structure rewards an alternative method of engagement. Today, there's money to be made in dividing people. Today, there's traction to be made in dividing people. Today, you're incentivized to divide and disincentivized to unite. The first thing that Ben and I talk about is how do you flip those incentive structures? The second thing is Ben makes a fascinating observation about human nature, which is that when you are told the narrative as a person, you're sitting right there. You're like, hey, what's the narrative? Let's say your narrative as you were growing up as a kid was the sky is blue. And somebody told you as you grew up and you went to middle school, the sky is actually not blue. It's because you see it as blue because of the reflection of the ocean and the reflection of the colors in our atmosphere and the gases that alter the way that the photons move through the atmosphere. And suddenly your whole worldview shattered. Recall that moment. Because that was a moment of deep discomfort. Not only discomfort, is like, what? And you immediately want to defend it. When our worldviews are challenged, when our preconceptions about people that we disagree with are challenged or undermined, it is incredibly disconcerting. And it causes you deep angst and even sometimes an existential crisis. And what Ben's film did and what the whole majority is trying to do is it's trying to shatter people's preconceptions of the other, whoever the other may be, whether it's a white poor farmer in Kentucky or a young African-American in Chicago or a Hispanic immigrant living on the border of Texas and Mexico. When we shatter people's preconceptions, it is incredibly challenging. So in fact, in some ways, the success of trying to bridge differences is swimming upstream to human nature. So we got to figure out how to reconcile that. And the third reason that I learned from this conversation is that humans, we have lived in tribes for thousands of years. And what do tribes need? We need the other. We need the enemy. And the reason why swimming against the human nature of the other is so difficult is because we like to have something to call out. What organizes us from social change movements to the media to anything is we want to have something to call out. As the question becomes, well, if we want to build a politics and a democracy where we reward civic discourse and listening and engagement, constructive dialogue across lines of difference, who's the enemy? Now, to some listening, that might be a very uncomfortable question to ask because well, Manu, isn't that counterintuitive to the mission? Like, aren't we being counterintuitive to having an enemy? And yet in other ways, being able to help people call out something that is causing them to be played in a system is incredibly powerful. And that's actually what Ben and I end on, is in fact what there might be is that we need to be better at articulating to the fact that when you feed into division, when you feed into the impulse for hate, you're actually just filling the coffers of those rich people that are trying to f divide us. Or in fact, when you're playing into the media ecosystem and media narrative of constant simple binaries of yes, no, us versus them, you're actually making their lives easier. Then in fact, when you give in 
to hate, you're actually undermining your own ability to be fulfilled. And so with those three reasons, I think there's a lot here in this conversation. This one's worth listening to from start to finish because Ben talks about a story from being a filmmaker and a storyteller to describing how he stumbled upon this project, the reunited States and importantly, what he learned from the failure, but also the internal successes of that project. And so without further ado, let's hear the conversation with Ben Recky. Ben, welcome to the hopeful majority, sir. Thank you, Manu. And please don't call me, sir. Well, this is, hey, this is take two for the audience that's wondering. We actually have a second version of this recording. The internet pooped out on us a little bit. And so I appreciate you getting back on. This time I dropped Mr. Ben, but I kept the sir in just to, just to create that slight level of, of, of moral superiority that you hold above uh, me in this conversation. So I appreciate you being here. Well, you know, someone told me when I first started my career that half the time someone says, sir, there's actually like a more like a FU behind it. So <laughs> I, uh, I always question it when people call me sir. So uh, you can call me Mr. Ben, Manu. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's a Gen Z thing is that, is that when the young people say sir, it's actually them letting out all their like anger right. towards their teacher. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, and no, I'm on I, to you. I, I, I <laughs> thank you for being on to me. I have, I have a lot of respect for your work, a lot of respect for your career. And as, as I detailed in the introduction, you're a storyteller, documentarian, and obviously you created this, this film called the reunited States, um, which was a fascinating expose in the polarization in America. And we'll go there. But before that, like, I want to ask you, how did you even get into the work of storytelling and documentary work. And the reason why I ask this is because we have a pretty big youth audience and people are always curious about people's career paths. Like what got you to where you are today? Yeah. Uh, well, it's a great question. And, you know, I sort of came up in the age before the internet and was doing backyard movies with my friends. And I guess the same way that YouTubers would just make stuff at home right now, we were just constantly churning stuff out. And uh, it was always like little Indiana Jones movies and kind of funny action films and stuff. And I ended up going to NYU film school. Um, and we kind of had this saying that in New York, you make films and in LA, you make deals. And that I found that to be very true, that there was a real emphasis on the craft and the kind of respect for cinema and what it can do. And, you know, cinema in many ways is the highest form of art. It's literature, photography, theater, music uh sounds radio all rolled into one and when you're a captive audience in this dark theater uh it envelops you and transforms you and it's a shared experience you know with a group of people that you don't know and it's a it's kind of a workout gym for your emotions where whatever you're carrying you can go laugh and cry and, and kind of let it out it's very cathartic mm. um and i've since even deepened my respect for cinema because of this ability to show you someone's life and the human condition, no matter how far across space and time they are, that you can see that your common humanity in them mm -hmm. and be a fly on the wall in these very private moments um, that are happening with characters. And in doing that, you reflect your own life and project your own identity into the story that you're seeing. And so this story that you were telling ourselves constantly about who we are, what we want to achieve in life, what our parents expect from us, comparing ourselves to friends. There's there's this constant self-criticism, but also this script that we're writing for ourselves about you know what our life is supposed to look like. And when it doesn't go according to the script, 
that's when a lot of like, you know, frustration or anger and depression kind of comes out. And the beautiful thing about storytelling and cinema in particular is that it can tell a story in order to break that story, that it can kind of rattle you out of your everyday narrative that you're telling yourself, if even temporarily, and infuse you with this universal theme of the human condition. And that's a really powerful tool when it's used uh, consciously. And I love a big, you know, entertaining movie as much as the next person, but the ones that really stick with me over time are the ones that I think about days, months, and years later. And so for me, getting into filmmaking, it, it's, a, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of time yeah. and energy. You know, two years goes into a two hour film and that's kind of a crazy time equation trade-off. Uh, and so we really want those films and stories to matter um, because it's a big chunk of your life. And it's, you know, it's a small um, experience for someone else, but can it move them deeply? Can it, can it make them think about something, uh, challenge their preconceptions about themselves in the world? And so those are the types of stories that I've been drawn to. Well, I, I, uh, by the way, now I know who the next guest needs to be on because you just said that cinema is the highest form of art. So I need to bring on like a painter or somebody so that they can just, <laughs> they can just like go at you for, for that. Bring so it. We'll, we'll we'll make sure to we'll we'll make sure to clip that part of the the conversation. Um, but, I thought we were bridge building, not building conflict here. Well, buddy. you know, some divides just can't be bridged. If, <laughs> if the the human conditions, like I think, part of the problem with bridge building, honestly, is we tell everybody to be peaceful all the time, and they're like, "Well, where are we supposed to take out our anger?" So it's 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 Ben said that cinema is the the highest form of art. Um, I didn't know that was going to be the most controversial thing, but we're just <laughs> we're we're getting the controversy out of the way in the beginning. I right. I want to ask you, like you you said it. it it's a way to talk about the human condition. How do you as a storyteller prevent yourself from becoming a part of the story? And I ask you that question because right now we're in this interesting environment where the news, the media, film, it's almost like we're watching a circus as opposed to people telling the stories. We're, we're almost more interested in the people telling the stories as opposed to the stories themselves. Uh, what is your thought process and how you manage that? Well, I do think as a storyteller, you are part of the story. You're infused into the characters and the perspective that you're looking at it, but ideally in a way that is not distracting and not uh, shaping your audience's experience. And so I think you're right when it comes to news media and, and, and even influencers, um, they are the story and they are, they are the person that's giving you information uh, the challenge is how do you do that objectively and remove your ego from the situation? Because, you know, a lot of times our ego is driving us to say or do one thing because, you know, either fame or popularity or money, and that shrouds the truth of what you're actually trying to express. And so for me, the, the goal as a storyteller is always to remove, uh, not necessarily myself, but any sense of pride from it. Um, because mm, I think that corrupts it corrupts the process. A, a sense of a sense of of pride in that process. What would your advice be to somebody in the news media that is telling stories about how they can remove that sense of pride in a way in which, as you said, they, they they're not necessarily removing this from the story, but they're not the story because it seems like that's what a lot of Americans these days are frustrated by. Yeah, and I and I would also put part of that on the system itself. Uh, it incentivizes, you know, uh, inflammatory content or engagement. Um, there's advertising sales to be considered. So 
lot of the times I think journalists do have that battle of trying to be objective and spotlight good news stories, but the apparatus around them is such that they're confined to telling the most inflammatory story or in a way that they're infusing their opinion into it. And so part of it is, you know, the journalists themselves and the other part is the apparatus around them. But I think the challenge is we also feed off of that, right? Like we respond to it. And so it incentivizes more uh, expression and behavior like that. So it's a really tough thing when, when you get into the bigger systems in place around it, which is why I, I, I tend to gravitate towards uh, documentary films and narrative films, because there isn't as much of that uh, apparatus around you if you can do them in a smart way and for a budget. So let's let's go. We're going to go to the reunited States, but you brought up this this notion of an incentive structure. And I mean, I'll be honest, it's something I struggle with on a daily basis building building this show. If you asked me, you know, like Manu, what is the path to growth? The path to growth is me bringing on some of the most controversial people, us having a conversation, us finding those clippable viral moments that I know you and the audience that's listening is going to like want to click on and and that drives engagement. And like it's it's it feels like a constant battle and and sorry to break it to you Ben but the work that you've bridged on on, on on bridging is certainly not the path to profit or engagement at least in the current structure how do you think we go about flipping the incentive structure or maybe it's not even flipping but how do you go go to go to a way in which the business models actually align with telling the story in not necessarily even an objective way but in a way that's focused on the story as opposed to the outcome. Yeah, it's something I think a lot about because uh, flipping the incentive structure means a changing human behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Like we as the consumers too need to uh, fight our primal instincts, which is extremely difficult to do. And this this kind of gets into the messaging, um, you know, that you and I have talked about, but it's really difficult to expect people to change. And so I'm more interested is how do we work within that framework that uh, uses some of those incentive structures and redirects them quickly? Like once you have people's attention, how do you quickly funnel it and channel it into something productive instead of destructive? Hmm. And and that's a that's a bridge that I'm really curious, you know, and, and working with the bridging movement and yourself and others is how, how to kind of hack the incentive structure as opposed to uh, reframe it or re reconstruct it. How to hack the incentive structure. That So for the context of the audience, I think that's actually going to be the frame for this conversation because part of the reason why I have such respect for your work is when we, and the audience gives us feedback all the time, when we talk about politics or we talk about building the hopeful majority or trying to reach across our differences, one thing we're always missing is the role that culture plays, right? And the, and, and the lack of engagement from people in Hollywood, documentarians, et cetera. And you're a storyteller and a documentarian that actually took the leap, put two years of your time in for a two-hour film called The Reunited States. What drove you to actually tell that story? So as a storyteller, I think, and, and any field of work that we were in, after 2016, I think a lot of people... Uh, on on all sides of the political spectrum woke up to the reality that the world was changing really rapidly and that a lot of things that we assumed to be true were not and that how could we get involved in a way that would be productive uh, however we saw fit. Mm -hmm. And for me as a storyteller, I quickly realized that turning the camera around on real events and you know working in nonfiction, I'd never done that up until 2016, 
was a way to explore. Oh, interesting. That. that was that was one of your first forays in 2016 to nonfiction. Yeah, it was a call to action in a lot of ways. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd only done narrative films before then, and it was actually in the a couple of days after the election. Um, you know, there was a lot of activity in the streets. I had I was a part of a big uh, street street uh, protest. And I had this realization that things were a lot more complicated than we were making them out to be, that that it wasn't just one uh, type of voter that turned out to support and elect Trump, that there was a lot of different coalitions that come together, whether it was the Asian community, Latino community, LGBT community, they're, this, these, uh, they're not monolithic, uh, yeah. all of these. It's not one groups. group. Right. And and if you look, I mean, 31 percent of Latinos voted for Trump. And and so there was a there was a, a big desire to spotlight these stories and help me understand and also hopefully the viewer understand that this was a much deeper and more complex base. And so I had this idea for a show called The Hidden Vote that would pro profile minorities who support Trump. And I partnered with a reporter for The Guardian uh, that we put together a series for PBS on these different groups. It was LGBT for Trump, Native Americans for Trump. And I thought this would be a really powerful use of media to hear from uh, people that we don't normally see in the news and start to understand, okay, this is a, a lot deeper uh, issue that we need to understand and explore and navigate together. Did you get, did you get critique by the way, for or pushback for, I could imagine some people saying like, Ben, you're you're you know normalizing quote unquote you know the Trump vote, or you're you're showing there's much more complexity when there actually isn't. Like, did you get pushback from people for embarking on this concept of like Definitely. creating some heterogeneity in in Trump's base? Yes, yeah, for sure. There was a lot of people that were upset that we were giving that we were platforming, um, you know, people that otherwise you know we would see we would be critical of, and 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 honestly, judging them in such a way that's like how could you not see that the man who you voted for doesn't have your interests at heart? How, how did you get played? And there was a certain amount of like judging that was coming. And that's what pushed me even deeper to go with the United States was, mm -hmm. okay, it's not just enough to uh, put these voices out there, but how do we look at the process internally that we're all going through of trying to reconcile these differences? Uh, and, you know, it's a lot of people, 75, 80 million people, that vote for one candidate or the other. So I think to make a statement, like if you voted for Trump, then you are a racist, is actually a form of prejudice itself because it's saying 80 million people are the same way, you know, and, and that's the definition of prejudice. And that was a realization I had to come to on my own was maybe I'm holding biases that I'm unaware of. And the reunited States kind of came out of that uh, reconciliation and you know, we talked about uh, voices of reason um, and, and, th and that there's a lack of them in our time, that there's not enough people out there that are able to articulate a path forward through this that is constructive as opposed to destructive. And that's yeah. part of the incentive structure. There, there's just there's just not as many elder statesmen out there like yourself. <laughs> we we need to we need to figure figure that out. I have to I have to ask you, by the way, were you would you say you would define yourself as as like highly politically engaged before before 2016 like wh where would you say you you I, you like fell on the spectrum of being informed versus like being super engaged like uh i was i was i was concerned about issues and uh and and geopolitics but and technology but not necessarily politics like uh hmm. 
politically engaged. I, I asked that. I asked that because uh, so many people that are not involved in the storytelling or documentary world, or the people that are not involved in Hollywood, or just like the the framework of culture, a lot of us look at that world and wish actually that more people did get engaged, or at least made their films in ways that demonstrated some narrative change. And like, I'm just curious if you could speak a little bit. I mean, you touched on this a little bit, but like your journey to actually stepping into this quagmire because your first nonfiction film being one about the hidden vote for Trump is like, it's a pretty big leap in one direction. Yeah. I think, uh, honestly, it really had to do the, with the turmoil I was going through after 2016. I felt very emotionally unstable and, you know, that, that the world had turned in a way that I didn't anticipate. And, you know, there was a very alarmist uh, response that I had. And I had very quickly realized how toxic that was for me as an individual, that I was carrying around so much anxiety and, and so much catastrophication of what was happening, that I was, it was clouding my ability to live a full mm -hmm. and complete life. And, and through that process, I guess, you know, uh, the stages of grief that, or excitement, you know, that people were going through, um, I, went through very quickly in the, in the, in the days and weeks after 2016. And I arrived at a place of if this is going to generate this much hate on both sides towards each other, this will destroy us eventually. And it'll destroy us as individuals. And, and so within weeks I was, I was, you know, coming from a place of compassion and wanting to understand and learn. And that, I guess, uh, was a view I didn't hear very much out there. And so as a storyteller, I'm always looking for those big universal ideas that are hidden in plain sight, that are mm -hmm. things that speak to our collective unconscious that we may not be able to have words to articulate. And that's, I, I for a while I called it urgent cinema because it's something that's on the tip of our tongue, but we don't know how to put into words yet. And it's something that we're all thinking and feeling, but just hasn't been articulated. And so uh, when the hidden vote kind of did have this polarizing effect, uh, I, I wanted to find something that could be more universal and speak to the human condition more. And go ahead. And so, so well, and and that's where the reunited states comes from. But something I would just hold on is this power of speaking to ideas or truths that are hidden in plain sight. And and in fact, like when you think about the history of just like ideas that's when some of the best ideas come because I think it's some, it, it speaks to something that people want, but they don't see. And one of those ideas that you wanted to elevate that was resonating with you was compassion, and empathy. And as you were going there, you went from the hidden vote to wanting to tell the story of compassion, and empathy. And that was the project of the reunited States. Um, why did you call it the reunited States? Uh, Honestly, the, the word just came to me in a quiet moment and it just, <laughs> okay. it, it was actually in a yoga class and, and it's weird. I, a lot of my best ideas come from, you know, these still moments where you're not necessarily uh, conscious of why they, yeah. they surface, but shout out to that yoga class. Yeah. <laughs> yoga in general. Uh, but reunited States, it, it was just a wordplay, you know, and I do a lot of like uh, MC and freestyling. And so my mind is always free associating words. And I thought this was too good of a title. Like someone must have taken it. It's a clever pun and all that. And I Googled it and there was a book based on it and it was on the same concept by Mark Gerzon. And so I reached out to him and he said, how did you find me? And I told him the story of come up with a title. And he said, well, I think this means we're, we're meant to work together. 
So it's really that that sense. And we talked about ideas hidden in plain sight and also that ideas uh, are living organisms that are looking for a host, uh, that they are in our collective unconscious and sort of out there in the world. And if you feel it and you've been sort of bitten by this bug, it's your duty to bring it into the world. And if you try and talk yourself out of it or fight the impulse, it'll go find another host. And so ideas choose us, we don't choose them. And that was something that really, you know, stuck with me with this was that if I have this burning desire to say something that I think a lot of people are feeling, but don't necessarily know how to articulate, then if I feel I've been chosen or I, I am the one who's supposed to articulate this, it's worthy of my time. I'll spend the, I'll spend the two years and not in some prophetic way, but just in some unexplicable it's creative your, it's way. your method of like doing service. And frankly, it's so interesting you describe that because the the entire concept behind the hopeful majority ban, I, I, I don't think you and I talked about the origin of the name, but the way it came about was actually, I was on this road trip from Austin to Boston. And throughout this trip, like almost everybody I met was like generally articulating and saying that like, we want similar things that people would say like, I want a family that I can care for. I want to live in a safe society. And yet people are across the political spectrum. You go to our students and they're all across the spectrum on different ideas. And yet they are, they're pretty temperamentally aligned. And so the entire thing was like, Hey, there's this hopeful majority of people out there. And so you have this idea in calling with the notion of the United States and you found markers on, and then you went on a journey. Yeah. Could you maybe, I'm thinking about the best way to go through this. Maybe what you could do is if you could tell the audience about what the documentary is about, I'm sure they can guess a little bit through the title. Right. And then I really want to get to the nitty gritty of like, how did you make it? What was your process? Because I know this path is ridden with challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so even before I met Mark and came up with the title, I had uh, seen one of the characters who ended up being a main character in the film speak at an event, Susan Bro. And Susan is the mother of Heather Heyer, who was killed in Charlottesville. And when Susan spoke, uh, it was from the place of a grieving mother, but she had such a strength and wisdom to say, my daughter died, but if we don't have these difficult conversations and see each other across the divide, we are gonna have more violence like this. And so it's our duty to honor people like my daughter by doing the hard work of avoiding further violence through conversation. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. I felt so petty uh, for all of the anxieties I'd had politically. Uh, here was someone who's on the front lines of division who had lost their child and who was able to speak calmly and rationally about compassion. And so I approached her afterwards and I said, I don't know how or why, but I really wanna help amplify your voice because I think you are a voice of reason in a time where there are none. And she vetted me for a while. You know, I, I found out later she had done a lot of background checking because, you know, she was in this national spotlight and there were death threats against her. People called her a crisis actress. And so she really wanted to know why, where I was coming from. And so in subsequent calls, she she really kind of held my feet to the fire and said, what do you want? What, why are you following me and stuff? And I just spoke from the heart. And I just said, I think that the transformation you've gone through is one that we all need to go through in some capacity or another. And we're all on that journey you're just on the other side of it. So I think by telling your story, it's gonna help a lot of us go through that journey. And so she agreed to let us follow her on the first anniversary of Charlottesville. And that became the first scene that we shot. We just went out there on a whim. And while 500 journalists from around the world were coming to cover that event and try and get a soundbite with her, 
we got into the car with her and got these quiet moments and she was like, Ben is with me. And, and, and so that became the first wow. scene that set the whole thing in motion. And for the, for the audience's context, this is the 20, was it 20? 2017 was when it happened and 2018 was the and, one year anniversary. And this was when I think uh, it was all right and right-wing groups that marched to Charlottesville and there were corresponding counter protests just, just for everybody's right. context. Yes. Yeah, it was, that's right. They were, they were trying to remove a statue of Robert E. Lee. Yeah. Uh, the city had voted on it and there was uh, a lot of the uh, alt-right or, or protesters on the right. And her daughter got killed in that process. Yes, the car uh, drove through the crowd and killed uh, her daughter and injured 18, 20 other people. Um, and so that was the sort of moment where I think the nation woke up to political violence. And I think there's a very stark photo or image actually of that car driving through yes. the crowd. And I mean, I think I've heard the story from you before and, and also when I watched the film, but you telling it to me again, you know, Susan, who's the mother of, of Heather and Heather passed away as a victim of, of what you could say is violence at a protest. And yet she's willing to say that we need to build a society of compassion. You know, and if she can say that, like, man, like, what what excuse do we have? Right. And yeah. what did you like learn from spending that time with her? That allows us to try and make the case to the average person that if she could stand for compassion in a moment where she has every right to be filled with anger and resentment, that we should too. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was the big light bulb moment was I think people who have lived through trauma and tragedy usually come out with a deeper sense of wisdom and the human spirit and not always. I mean, and she would be the first to say she'd fallen short at times and there was a lot of anger and the grief process. But the fact that she had the moral authority uh, and the microphone because the world was really interested. And honestly, she was the first to say that the only reason the world cares is because my daughter was white. If she was a person mm -hmm. of color, I don't think she wouldn't have gotten this kind of press. And so all she was trying to do was redirect that attention towards the issues that mattered. And it, it's incredibly wise and, and compassionate. And so I just knew, and a part of it comes from her history as a school teacher. She, you mm -hmm. know, that was her job all through her life. And so channeling ideas into accessible uh, lessons was something that came naturally to her. But obviously having that emotional turmoil under that um, definitely opened people's hearts so that it could be filled with something new. And mm -hmm. and that was the, the gift. And the three other stories in the film, you know, just yeah. briefly, uh, one is about a Republican family that goes on a road trip uh, to all 50 states to find out what divides us. And it's a, a very emotional story because it gets into uh, you know, David Leverton, his daughter was born with Down syndrome and, and Aaron, her mother, it turned their life upside down and they kind of felt what it was like to be judged uh, on the surface of just what you look like and, and how you act. And so it led them on a journey to find out where judgment and, you know, had, had divided other people. And they go into black communities and native reservations and border towns and ask people to hear their, their story. And you know, a lot of people are like, do you really want to hear what I've been through? Are you ready for it? I don't believe that you are that interested. And then they'll tell the most heartbreaking story um, that usually goes back to some injustice. And uh, they end up crying and embrace. And so the film overall is, you know, even though reunited states might sound like an academic exercise, it's a very emotional it's very and very practical story. and grounded. In, and what were yeah. the other two stories? 
The other two uh, was one we followed an independent politician in Kansas who was running for governor, Greg Orman. And the idea was to challenge the two party system. And he had had a really close call at becoming a senator, uh, which would have completely changed the balance of the Senate. He, he would have been the swing vote that would decide uh, which issues move forward, which policy got passed. And that's the Senate fulcrum strategy. We followed him on his governor run and, and his he wrote a book called Declaration of Independence, ENTS, mm. uh, to talk about the need to break the duopoly um, that is really self-serving and that it doesn't represent us. And the final story. Uh, right, really quick, how did he end up doing? Did he, did it, did it work out at all? He, no, he he ended up losing that race. Uh, I think it was he got less than ten percent of the vote in the okay. end. Um, yeah. But his his message really resonated. I think that the challenge is, you know, people see it as a spoiler, and this kind of brings up interesting part of our conversation about RFK oh, and yeah. what that'll look like next year. Um, but and, and I mean, and partially the reason why I asked that, kind of unfortunately, knowing the outcome. I mean, it goes to your entire thing about incentive structures and, and, and again, just that you don't get rewarded for this. Sorry, but I, I want you to get to the last story and then, and then, and then I have yeah. to ask you how it went. <laughs> yes. No, there's a lot more to talk about the duopoly and, and yeah. how the ways around that and to break the incentives. Um, the final story. So I really, um, I talked to markers on the author of the book and I said, I really want to find a, a story that portrays the youth and like what young people are doing in this moment. Um, because it would and be so you came to us. <laughs> so I came <laughs> to another, uh, my other favorite Indian American in the bridging movement, uh, Stephen Olakara. And he had the millennial action Project, Uh, and it was just a really compelling story of how do we get Congress and our state legislators to represent the interests of young people. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes that he brings up in the film is Bobby Kennedy's, where he says, young people have the least ties to the past and the greatest stake in the future. So it's really important to listen to uh, young people that are coming into uh, age because they're gonna bring a perspective where they they stand the most to lose if, if their voice isn't represented. But our government is structured in such a way and our voter base is structured in such a way that it, it really speaks to older uh, members of society. And so, it's great to see young people engage and and this story with Stephen Olakara was a way to try and empower and show that there is change possible. Hmm. So you had and by the way this is this is so ironic but the day that we're filming this today Stephen's organization Millennial Action Project just got rebranded to the Future Caucus because it turns out Stephen that millennials got outyounged by Gen Z and now I'm at risk ah. for being outyounged by the by the Gen Alpha um, Interesting, but, but it's it's very it's very ironic, Ben. I don't know if you knew that. I thought that was going to happen at some point because it I was like, hey, "We're all aging." Okay, so yeah, the millennials are aging out, and now it's got to be more general, just about the future. I think that's smart. I think it's a but, good rebranding, and it goes to the, again the messaging. Um, so you have these four stories in this film, right? You have a very emotionally riveting one about Susan, who loses her daughter to violence at a protest uh, in Charlottesville. You have one about a politician in Kentucky who's trying to run as an independent. You have Kansas, yeah. In Kansas, sorry, in Kansas. You have one about a couple um, that drove all, across all 50 states. You have one about Stephen Alacara who's rallying young state legislators. And I guess maybe this is just because I'm a nerd of this work, but my natural reaction is everybody should be hearing these stories. And in, in fact, this is three weeks after now we're in the the aftermath of what's happening in in Gaza with Israel Hamas and the conflict there 
And I can just imagine people are wanting stories where people are bringing people together, compassion, empathy. So naturally the question is, how did the film do? Uh, well, so I guess just on the topic of the film itself, uh, the concern with doing stories about, you know, compassion or bridge building is that does it lack conflict? Like drama is all about conflict. Somebody wants something, something standing in their way. Two people want different things. They go head to head. At its most basic, basic, you know, fighting and conflict is is what draws our attention dramatically. And so the argument I would make and I would make with the film, which is on Amazon Prime for anyone who wants to watch it, Mm -hmm. is transformation is incredibly dramatic. When you're watching people come up against their darker thoughts, behaviors, impulses, and push through them, there's a lot of inner turmoil and emotion that comes pouring out. And so for me, the idea was always a transformation uh, is what will be the hook. And in terms of how the film released, so we- finished- well, sorry, actually on, on that on that yeah. piece really quickly, what, what did you think would be the hook in this transformation of story? Well, watching characters undergo their preconceptions being obliterated. So whether it was Susan Bro who had kind of, you know, undergone this huge tragedy and was now going to other people and trying to rattle them up, shake them, make them understand that their binary view of the world is actually part of the problem. Uh, or the Levertons who go on a jer- journey to see what division, what's causing division and what's the problem and realize that they might be part of the problem themselves, that they, the way that they had viewed these issues was fueling the problem. Uh, so each one of these had their own kind of introspective view. And for me as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, this film changed me because I had gone in with pretty steadfast views that I was on the right side of issues or the right side of history. And that I, by thinking that way or by posting my angry, you know, uh, social justice uh, rants that I was somehow helping, but I didn't realize that in the end, I was pouring gas on the fire and that we all have a role to play in whether we're turning the heat up or down in our political tensions. And that internalization is what the film really demands or calls from people. It's a call to action to say, are you part of the problem or part of the solution? And you have a role to play. Every single moment of every day, you're making a choice. You're either choosing hate or you're choosing love. And that is a something that we have control over. We have agency over it. And it feels so powerless out there over the over time. But how we interact with each other, how curious we are, how angry we are, in every encounter, it's an opportunity. And so it's sort and of- each of those, And each of those actions contributes to that incentive structure. Um, right. And for the audience's context, what year was the film released in? So we finished it and started screening in festivals in 2020 uh, okay. before the election. And we ended up getting a distributor and releasing in 2021, right after the inauguration, like uh, in February. And so timing really, yeah, plays a, a critical role in this because I think the pre-election frenzy where there was so much animosity, anxiety, it was, we're coming out of the, the pandemic. And there was a moment where in 2020, I mean, that was <laughs> what a tumultuous year in general, feels like decades ago. Uh, it does, but so much happened and wow. and and it really forced all of us to look within and say, you know, if our light if our work is taken from us, if our school is taken from us, if our friends are taken from us, what is life about? What is the purpose of my life? 
And that was a really deep moment where people actually started to think with more empathy and it, it was short-lived, but you know, hopefully those lessons are still in us. And this film really resonated with people in that moment where we were kind of, you know, stripped of everything that defined us. Uh, and then when it released, it was in a different world. The election had happened. There was, you know, the big lie had happened, the insurrection had happened. And so it was actually came into a world that was uh, less receptive to it than we had hoped. And how did it how did it end up doing? I mean, candidly, it bombed, you know, like we had Van Jones and Megan McCain come on as executive producers. It was really important to get someone from the left and someone from the right to co-endorse the film. We went on to The View. Uh, Van showed a segment from the film and, and you know, four million viewers. And they have huge social followings, a million people each. Um, and so there was a lot of traction and uh, conversation about it. Um, at the same time, and they were both aware of this and even, you know, warned me when they came on board that, you know, they are lightning rods of controversy themselves by speaking their minds. And uh, that sort of helped a lot in terms of framing the film out there, but also uh, in some ways drew controversy to the film without people having seen it, saying like, oh, I don't want to see it because so-and-so is involved. Yeah, um, the, and the, the, quick, the quick judgment. Yeah, and I mean, ironically, we got bashed from the left and the right. And I guess this is something that you've probably experienced as well, is the Daily Beast uh, called us something close to Nazi sympathizers by trying to normalize getting along with people on the right. And uh, the Daily Wire called us extremely disingenuous and bigger liars than Joe Biden and mm -hmm. uh, in our call for unity. And so... At some point, I was like, "Well, I guess if we're upsetting both sides, we're doing something right." But uh, there was why, a. Why do you why do you think they they had that critique? Well, it goes back to the incentive structure, right? Like you, you as a media apparatus, you sell more by making sure that you have an enemy to talk about and that you have uh, engagement from your viewers against the other side. And I mean, this might be uh, conventional wisdom now, but most media outlets on the left or right are showing the most extreme uh, people on the other side of the aisle. And so you're seeing maybe the 10% or less of the, of the worst people on the other side. You're never seeing that about your own side and you're never seeing, uh, you know, the people in the middle. Yeah. And so if we're seeing 5% of the most extreme people a hundred percent of the time we get a disproportionate view of what's actually going on in the world. And we think that everybody on that side is, you know, uh, anarchist or, you know, uh, anti-fascist or, you know, alt-right, you know, neo-Nazi. And, and that just distorts, you know, our perception of, of, of most of us. Like we said, this, uh, what do you call it? The happy majority, the, the, the hopeful majority, hopeful majority You're on the show, Ben. Yes. Right. Well, <laughs> But 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 no, but it, it, it again, it goes to uh, why I was so passionate about having you on, which is like when you and I met in L.A. at the American Democracy Summit and we had a conversation and I think it was like the basement of that giant like warehouse building. And we were having a talk about 
this and you were so candid in your assessment. It makes it like, sound so shady when you say it like that. <laughs> yeah, we were we were in the we were in the basement of a warehouse in <laughs> right. LA. Downtown we're all, LA. Where all social movements start. Right. And yeah. and you and we had this conversation because that's what you know normal people do apparently is for 45 minutes talk about <laughs> politics in the basement. And 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 um we we're just secretly hiding from like all the crazy partisans in LA. Um and it was actually a bomb shelter. And the film bombed. So there's <laughs> something going on here. And the and, and you said like the film bombed. And I was hearing you describe this film. And again, as you describe it, like the audience is following this and it's like, man, like this seems like a great film. And and one is like I just your level of like candidness and honesty and humility, given that again, as you started this conversation with you dedicate two out two years to a two hour film. Like that was first of all, just incredibly refreshing because for somebody that I respect a lot to be able to say that it was a learning moment for me, but more than just a learning moment, it got a, both of us to be thinking about the question, well, why did it bomb? And, right. and you got to some of the stuff about the environment and the, the time at which it was released. And, you know, maybe Van and Megan who are incredible figures in their own right might've had polarizing um, effects given their audiences but there has to be a deeper reason and th that those reasons is something that we can take a lesson from and the last other thing i'll just say on this is like i know that people in this audience can relate because oftentimes when you're saying like let's have these hopeful conversations let's have these honest dialogues you almost feel like you're toiling away in obscurity you know and and you're in the audience you're like yeah that all sounds great but it's like kind of kumbaya to the rest of the world so like, what is your analysis for why it bombed in your opinion well, my dad always has this saying, if you're not in the left lane and you're not in the right lane, you're roadkill, mm. which means, you know, you, being in the center, uh, you can be seen as a traitor to your side. You can be seen as uh, infiltrating the other side or legitimizing or normalizing. And when we're we're trained to look at threats, like it's in our nature, you know, a, a million years of evolution have taught us that we're in a zero sum world where if we are at this watering hole and there's an invading tribe coming in, we either kill them or be killed because there's not enough water for all of us. Instead of trying to bridge the divide. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Hardwired. So when you yeah. think, okay, we're in, you know, civilized society for, you know, a couple thousand years or arguably just a couple hundred years, uh, how do we fight that million years of evolution that we're hardwired with? And when you say, you know, we have the ability to transcend our primal emotions. That's honestly the defining trait of the human experience is our ability to, to not act on our, and morality and why we have laws. You know, there people have uh, dark impulses, but you can't act on them because we've all collectively agreed to say, this is not good for our survival as a species, our society, all those things. And so why the film uh, didn't connect with people, I think part of it is, when we have this reinforced narrative of what the threat is and who is causing the threat, when you question that, it destabilizes people to their core, which is mm -hmm. everything I've been building my beliefs on for the past several years, 10 years, whatever it is, is being challenged. And if I accept that, my whole reality may crumble. And so you, mm -hmm. you really have to be in a place of openness to say, maybe I'm wrong. And if you can do that, then growth can happen. But or if you're so full of anger, you see this as uh, challenging your narrative and then you become angry at the person that's, or the film that's challenging your narrative. I will say there was uh, a happy ending to this story of the okay. United States in that 
when we finally did our PBS run, because the way it works is, you know, you go on Amazon and then you have uh, different windows of distribution. We uh, did a deal with PBS. So almost a year later in early 2022, we released the film nationally on PBS in 97 wow. stations across the country. And it reached uh, tens of millions of people. And, and, you know, that was the big push for the film that it needed. And I got so many emails and so much engagement on social after this, that was people reaching out saying, thank you. Like, I, I didn't know how to talk to my relative anymore. I had lost my uh, friend over this. And now I feel like there's hope and I want to send this film to them as a way to reignite the conversation. And that made me realize that the, the film's message, you know, and just going back to what we're talking about as storytellers, I look at that film and it, it's one of the first times I'm so proud of every frame that's in there. And it's so deeply emotional for people. Like a lot of people, you know, have said they've cried in, in four or five times in the film. And that the message of getting along with each other or finding compassion for people, that that would be controversial was so surprising to us, you know, but you can't control what happens in the world. You can only control, mm -hmm. you know, your own work and what you put into the world. And nothing will change the fact that in the time of great distress and turmoil, the team put something into the world to try and help people and give them hope. And yeah, an, an oasis I, of hope. Um, and, and I think I'm happy that that PBS outcome happened, but there's two strands that I want to want to hold on. One is what you actually just said, Ben, which is that a message of compassion became controversial, or even, and I would say this is actually what gives me hope about this work, became countercultural, because in some ways your message in your story was fighting against the grain of that dominant conception of reality. And then the second piece of this is that human nature feeling that you invoked, which is that if your entire reality just gets suddenly challenged, it's discomforting. It's it's very concerning. And in fact, you want to fight back against it. How do we challenge that? Um, and how do we navigate that reality? And, and maybe it goes back to your original point of like hacking the incentive structures. How do you how do you approach that? What's your thought? Yeah, I think that uh, you touched on the hardest part about this whole thing, which is how do we redirect people's attention towards something productive as opposed to destructive? And why is compassion controversial? Uh, it really does come down to the outrage machine, I guess the incentive structure that is out there and mm -hmm. that we are trained to pay attention to danger. And that's part of our own survival. The reason, you know, we evolved and became the dominant species on the planet was our ability to analyze threats and, and maneuver them as a group, you know? Uh, and, and so the fact that you have a film that is asking people or a message that's asking people, Hey, those primal emotions that are coursing through you right now, can you take a second, breathe, think about it, reflect, and then act or respond? Whereas our hardwiring is, I feel something and I respond right away. And the reality is, there's a lot of self-destructive nature that comes out of that. You know, we might think that we're fighting the good fight, but it's incredibly taxing on us. It's incredibly uh, tiring. It ruins our sense of peace. And so are we in the best frame of mind to make productive decisions when we are robbed of our ability to reason? 
And it's hard to ask people to do that, which is, it was hard for me making the film because at a certain point I was looking into a mirror and, and saying, wait a second, I'm actually part of the problem. The way I've been viewing people on the other side is one dimensional and I need to transform in order to do that. And then we're asking people to do that in 90 minutes, you know, is to reflect on it. And I, I don't think this message is, there's not a lack of it getting out there. It's like, is it being amplified? Is it getting engagement? Are the algorithms suppressing it or, or picking it up? And so when we talk about messaging moving forward, like it was incredibly defeating that this message of hope that we had worked so hard on fell on deaf ears. I went through many months of like soul searching of what we did wrong and stuff, you know? And, and I realized in talking to other people in the movement that it's the common headwinds that we face, which is how do we get this message out there, which we know somewhere all of us know in our core is the only way that we will survive these uh, current times in this division. Hmm. How do we get that? How do we crack through the thick defenses that we've all built for ourselves? Did I, uh, have I ever told you the story about dried kale? No. Okay, let's take a break. Okay. We'll be right back and we're gonna talk about dried kale for a quick second. Riveting, riveting cliffhanger. All right, and we're and we're back. Dried kale was the cliffhanger, which I think speaks to, by the way, <laughs> the, the challenge of some of this work is the lack of riveting cliffhangers that exist. <laughs> um, so I was uh, at this event uh, and this um, wonderful uh, journalist, Instagram influencer, um, somebody that I look up to named Kelly Corrigan described a lot of this work, you know, civic dialogue, listening to each other, even the name Hopeful Majority, which I've talked a lot about as the equivalent of like, yeah, and I talk about this a lot too, is the equivalent of like trying to get people to eat dried kale, you know, it's, it, and I think about it as trying to get America to eat its vegetables, you know, mm -hmm. where it's like good for you. It's great. Like, let's have dialogues. Let's have conversations. But I hear you saying, you know, we all think this should happen. And yet, you know, the obesity rate in this country is, is enormously unfortunate. And we all know that we should be doing this thing, and yet we have such a hard time doing it. And in some ways, it runs fundamentally counter to our to our nature. And as a vegetarian, I'm in an odd position, Ben, because I hate vegetables. And so, <laughs> like, what is your conception around how we overcome that challenge? Because I do think that a lot of the people listening to the show would love your advice on, hey, you know, when I go and talk to my friends about having dialogues, they immediately say, well, that sounds like some kumbaya, like let's all get along activity. And it doesn't actually speak to people's real desire to create change. How do you yeah. think we bridge that gap? You know, this is something I've been thinking a lot about over the past few months is messaging of the movement um, and especially leading into an election year, which is going to be especially embattled and, and bruising. Um, is there a way, and this kind of goes back to our concept of hacking the incentives, can we fight fire with fire? Meaning, can we grip people emotionally up front and then quickly redirect it towards something productive? And so, you know, if there's an outrage machine out there that is louder than any, anyone else in the room, what's our outrage? And it's probably something with the effect of, hey, you're being played. You're being played by the system. Mm -hmm. You're playing into the incentive structure. You are actually, all they want by telling you that democracy is under threat is your vote. And you can give it to them, but do you want to live in this constant anxiety and fear and anger? Because it's crippling to you. It's preventing you from living a full and productive life. And if there's something that leading with that kind of snapping people out of the incentive structure, 
that then whatever you say afterwards, they're listening. Is there an attention sort of grabber, you know? And and it's tricky because you don't want to enrage people further, but you also need to get their attention. And so I do think that, uh, for example, in 2024, it's going to be nine, 10, 11 months of just nonstop messaging from one side or the other. Oh, it's going to be miserable. It's going to be intense. And it's going to tell you that the other guy is threatening democracy, your way of life, your happiness, and both sides are going to use that. And they want you to, I mean, in many ways, there's some truth to it, like the, the you know, depending on your viewpoint. But if you live in that constant fear, and if it becomes an existential battle, that will cause people to panic and, you know, lose sleep and potentially act out and there might be violence and things like that. And so the other thing I would say, and this kind of comes from the elder statesman, Mark Gerzon, mm -hmm. of this whole movement. Uh, when I mentioned this, I said, look, whatever happens next year, 80 million people are going to be outraged at the result. There's no way around it. And, and you know, if, if Trump uh, wins, the left is going to go bananas. And if Biden wins, Trump uh, supporters are going to go bananas and say this was another stolen election. This was the last stand. And so is there any good outcome to this, you know, where we don't rip ourselves to shreds? And he kind of paused and looked at me and said, whatever happens, we're going to be okay. As a country, as a people, we will be okay. We've been through a lot in recent times, let alone all the decades. You know, we have two wars going on. We survived a pandemic. There's been uh, an insurrection. There's been uh, protests and violence in the streets. I mean, there's so many issues that we have navigated through. And so I think it's important to take a breath and say, no matter what happens, we will find a way through it and we will, we will, we will be okay and we'll emerge stronger as a country. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is just how do we cut that message through while it's happening instead of something, you know, uh, consequential emerging that, that makes people, you know, feel hopeless. And so mm -hmm. is, there, is there a tip of the spear that we can define as a movement? And I think it kind of goes back to, you know, this, you are a cog in the machine. And if you don't step back and realize it, you will act without thinking and you will act on other people's behalf. And so while you're fighting the good fight, whichever side you're on, is this a fight that you are fighting or are you being puppeted? Are you fighting for someone else for some other reason? And is this actually healthy for you? Do you feel at peace? Do you feel like you, you're living a, a, a stable life or are you anxious all the time? And that kind of messaging, I, you know, I think it needs some refining and I'd love to talk to you and the community about it further, but yeah. it just seems like that might be the only thing, something along those lines that can get through the clutter. And I think a lot of the community listens to this and, and I think it's a good way to start the conversation. In some ways, it almost seems counterintuitive that, you know, you're essentially asking the question, which is who is our enemy? And, and then, and that almost seems counterintuitive to bridging. And yet what you're saying is that there is a fundamental element of human nature here, which is that we need something to call out. And the question becomes, who are you being played by? Just the last question I've got for you before we go to like the last question that I ask everybody, mm -hmm. and I know we're coming up on time, but I, I really appreciate how much time you've made for this conversation is how do you respond to somebody that says, but my outrage is real. And, and I want people to hear that outrage. Like I, I, you know, it, Ben, it's easy for you to say, I'm out here facing real issues, you know? Um, how do you 
respond to somebody in that in the audience that that feels that sentiment in response to what you just said i i totally agree and support you know the sentiment and and the outrage i think that there is uh, a reality that that a lot of rights are under threat and a lot of people feel marginalized and uh not heard i would say yes is there a way to channel that anger and also is this the most effective way to get your point across to cause change because change usually happens with a majority of people getting on board with an issue and is your approach alienating people that you might want to build a coalition with you know if we're if we're if we're on a spectrum you know across the uh, the country politically it's usually somewhere in the middle that defines what kind of change happens, whether it was civil rights or women's rights. It's, it's that winning over that little bit more uh, into whatever you perceive as the other side into your cause. And so is the outrage actually pushing those allies further away? And is it harming your ultimate goal? And that's just a question of you can feel outrage. I'm not talking about not caring or like being dispassionate. You can have that intense feeling inside but is there a more constructive strategic way to achieve your goal, which is maybe if I understand where they're coming from and what their pain is and why they're so afraid, I can speak to it in a way that's constructive for my issue. And that's in my own interest instead mm -hmm. of attacking them. Yeah, I appreciate you you saying that because oftentimes on college campuses, the I mean, if you ever want to come across a crowd that's incredibly passionate and cares about a bunch of issues, it's young people on college campuses. And they'll say like, so are you telling me that I have to reduce my convictions right and and what you're saying is no it, it's a question of you've got a menu of items to create change and one of those is zero sum i win at your cost politics which is where we are at right now and the second path is a much more coalition-based path that is focused on persuasion and society not putting party above your progress and i think there's a lot there um, and I think that is provocative and coming from somebody that's a filmmaker and a storyteller that doesn't have an origin in this work and yet has a lot of wisdom to give. I deeply appreciate you being here. And so the last question, go ahead. Well, I'll just say one thing on that. I think there's a need and room for all types of activism. Oh, yeah. I think that like loud vocal outrage activism serves its purpose in pulling, you know, coalitions. It shifts the Overton window. Yes. But the other question one should ask themselves is, is this a healthy way for me to live? Is this outrage helping me personally? Or do I feel a sense of anxiety, panic, anger all the time that is, you know, affecting my quality of life? And that's a self-modulation and self-reflection. So I, I think there's room for all of it, but you also, this is a marathon. And if you're, you know, if it's destructive or wearing you out, like there's a way to be strategic and, and kind of think of where the work you does fits into the spectrum, you know? Mm. And the supplementary question there to ask also is not only is it, is it good for me as a person, but is the moment calling for it? Like, mm. you know, I, I've got King's biography here. If you're on Spotify and Apple, like I'm sure you're tired of me referencing things that are visually there, but get on YouTube. Um, what can I say? And, and the, the King's most recent biography written by a guy named Jonathan Ike, who I had on, I think it was like episode nine or 10 talks about this, which is that, you know, you had two leading civil rights advocates in the 20th century in the United States. You had Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King. And one of the fascinating things is that they presented again, two options on a menu item of how to create change. And interestingly enough, 
before Malcolm X was assassinated, he actually wrote a letter to Dr. King that talked about how he thought that his method of change at that unique time had really produced real progress. And that's the other piece is what is the moment calling for him, right? It's like if, 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 you know, you're trying to build a bed in your, in your dorm and you've got two options, you either use a chainsaw or a hammer, like chainsaw is going to break your bed apart and the room and it's going to wake everybody else in the, in the hallway. And the other option helps you actually build the bed. And, and I think that's a really good way to, way to think about this. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything else you want to you want to add to this? Because I think there's a lot there. Well, um, just, otherwise, yeah, you know? no, just the, the King analogy. I think you know uh, what made MLK so powerful is that he spoke all across the racial divide, and real change happened when he ignited the hearts of moderate white Americans. And that, yeah, yes, and that's what really tipped things over for LG, LBJ to sign uh, civil rights amendments, and so. It, it was strategic, you know, like you needed probably Malcolm X and MLK to create change, but without MLK it wouldn't have bridged and built a coalition. And so something similar now, like fight the good fight, fight it in your way, but just think, is it fully constructive and healthy for me the way I'm doing it? And it might be, and it might also be that there's ways to channel that anger in other, in other ways. And remember, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're building bridges, know that and you're getting flack from everybody, know that um, for somebody to walk across the bridge, both sides have to step on it. And and that's the spirit of this work. Last question. I ask this question to everybody, politicians, celebrities, filmmakers, painters, potential future painters that have a fight to pick. Big controversy. I know this I'm glad. I'm glad that we got the controversy out in the beginning. Yeah, don't um, get me started. He's just in a room by himself. We're with a hundred people making a movie. <laughs> so, what? Part of the reason why it's called the hopeful majority is because I think having hope requires you to have a really good answer to the question why. You know, like why do you do what you do? Um, so, what is your why? I think now. I operate from a place of what do I want to do with the time I have left on this earth? And do I want to uh, get as much as I can for me personally, or do I want to do as much good as I can in the world? And this might sound a little hokey, but I really feel uh, the most peace I've found in my own life is by serving others and by, by helping my brothers and sisters in whatever way, whether it's small things like a smile on the street or a conversation, you know, to someone who uh, I might not always talk to, or for me, it's storytelling. It's, it's how do we shape stories that can reach the most amount of people and affect the most positive change. And really, I guess even more specifically than that, relieve suffering. How can I help relieve suffering from other people? Because we all go through it. I mean, especially young people, I feel like when I was young, everything was do or die. Like every decision, you know, where I wanted to be when I was 26 or 30 uh, or what heartbreak felt like at 18 or 19, everything was the end of the world. And it was an incredibly stressful way to live. And then you get to a place where you're like, wait a second, I have a little bit more control over this. I have a little bit more uh, agency. And so for me, storytelling is a way to relieve people from suffering and the suffering that we create for ourselves. Because I, I think a lot of times we see ourselves as victims. A lot of times we are victims, but we are our own worst enemy. 
And that's true as individuals and as a society. We are bent on self-destruction. And that's a choice. And that's, again, this comes back to our overcoming our primal nature and stuff. So for me, it, can we use story to break a story just means can we use it to give hope and relieve suffering? Ben, thanks for joining the Hopeful Majority. Thanks, Manu. It was exciting to be here. Thank you so much to Ben Recchi for that really enlightening conversation. The answer to the question why for him I thought was particularly powerful. I appreciate you listening. We need to build the support. We need to grow this. As Ben talked about, the incentive structures are rigged against us in the hopeful majority. So we need to do everything we can to share this episode. If you are on Spotify and Apple, leave a review, please. It helps us grow this together. You and I, if you're on YouTube, subscribe. Leave a like. And remember, every Monday, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, sound like a broken record, but that's the truth because we're building this hopeful majority one Monday, one week, one person at a time. I'll see you next week.